0: In the early 1900s, Napoleon Hill had the privilege of interviewing the 500 most uh, successful people in the world. He took the lessons he learned from them, took their their best wisdom for life, put that in a book called Think and Grow Rich. He opened that book with the story of a man named R.U. Darby. R.U. Darby's uncle moved from Maryland to Colorado to search for gold. He struck some gold, he came back to Maryland, told Darby, join him. They had other family and friends invest in them so they could go back to Colorado and strike even more gold. When they got back, they found even more gold and they kept digging and they were just about close to paying off their debts, thinking they're going to you know, hit it big the next day. Suddenly, to their surprise, the gold just simply disappeared. They couldn't find any more. They searched, but again, no matter what they did, they just couldn't find any more gold, discouraged they gave up they sold their digging equipment all their maps to a man in town for pennies on the dollar darby and his uncle went back to maryland now they had all this debt to their family they couldn't pay darby would share what happened next though which changed his life that man they sold the equipment to hired an engineer Together, they went out to the site where Darby and his uncle had dug. The engineer said gold, it it flows in these, these sort of lines here. I think that they went left of the line. Go to the right of where they were digging. I think that's where the gold is. Sure enough, this man did that. He struck gold and became an instant millionaire. Darby found out about that as anybody would he was discouraged and he was upset what he found out is that man was three feet from where he and his uncle had been digging and so their story became known as three feet from gold. The reason Napoleon Hill would include that story is Darby learned from that lesson. He then used what he learned about not giving up to focus on his business became successful at business, told his story about the gold and how he had missed it to encourage people for this reason, same as Napoleon Hill, to simply say, you know what, people give up too easily. Darby then was able to pay off all the debts he had to family and friends because this time he didn't give up. And Napoleon Hill said, I want to open the book of wisdom with this story so that you understand don't give up. People give up too soon. When we come to this time of of Easter and the weeks following that, we stop and say, you know, Easter is a moment for each of us to say, if I've given up, walked away from my faith or given up on my marriage or given up because of the economy and because of the changes with the virus, you know, what? Whatever it is, this is a moment to come back and say, you know what? I don't want to be one of those people that gives up. I want to be one of the ones who pushes through and finds the promise of who I am in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 5, just one verse, verse 17. We're going to read each part here, but the first part says, By the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through that one. You go back to the story of Adam. We understand he brought death and sin because he had fallen for the Satan's lies. And so, again, by one person, transgression and death, sin and death now entered into the world. Here's the thing, though. Dutch Sheets says it well. For every evil intent of the destroyer of our lives, God has a restorative process already planned. And that's what you find if you go back to that picture of Adam. As soon as he falls, the the Messiah is on his way. And that's the promise. Before he fell, Messiah was on his way. Every evil intent of the enemy, God already has a restorative process planned for your life and for my life. That's the beauty of saying, you know what, I understand the promise that he died and that he rose again. And the reasons behind that, we will see much of that here in a moment. You know, Jesus, the, the time when he was preaching in Jerusalem, there were the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and they would criticize him. They would say, show us more miracles. If you're really who you say you are, we want to see even more. And what did Jesus finally say to them? He said, I'm not going to show you any more miracles except one. That one is, I'll be three days and nights in a tomb, and on the third day I'll rise again. And they couldn't believe that. And so they mocked him even more. And they would say to him, you know, where's God? And then when he was on the cross even, you remember, they mocked him and said, if God is with you, God is your father, then tell him to, to take you down from the cross. John eight twenty nine. Jesus says this to them at that time as they are criticizing him, mocking him, saying, show us more, where's God? He says this, he who sent me is with me. He who sent me is with me. You know, when everybody else left Jesus, the Father was there with him. You know, people ask, where is your Father? And Jesus would say, he is with me. He has not left me at one moment of my ministry. He's not going to leave me at one moment as I go to Calvary. He who sent me is with me. And here's the thing, though. Now that we are in Christ, he who sent us is always with us. As scripture says, greater is he that is within you than he in the world. Let me show you an example of that. This man here is Will Ford, and he's a businessman. He shared a few years ago, another company was suing him. He says it it was an unjust lawsuit. But how do you prove yourself without it costing a lot of legal fees and prove yourself innocent? He said they were coming after $100,000. He was faced with losing his company because of this other company bringing this unjust lawsuit. He sank into depression, said, you know what? I even had suicidal thoughts. He said, I went to a worship service. There was an evangelist going to speak that night. This man walked up to the podium. Before he spoke, he looked at the crowd and said, I need to pray for somebody and looked right at Will Ford. The woman in front of him thought she was talking to him, talking to her. And so she stood up and said, yes, I need prayer. And the evangelist said, sorry, ma'am, I'm talking to the man behind you. He said, will step out into the aisle. And he did. The evangelist prayed for him, and Will Ford said, you know, in that moment, I just felt peace and love. And he felt, as he shared in these words, is what God, he said, said to me, William, I'll part a Red Sea to make a way for you. I'll part a crowd of people to let you know how much I love you. That lawsuit came to an end. That other company went out of business. But again, that's a promise of he who sent you is with you. Dutch Seat says, where God and Satan are concerned, the issue has never been power. God is all-powerful. It is always and only a question of authority. Jesus didn't say he had been given all power. He already had that. He was stating he had taken back the authority Adam had lost. What does that mean for you and for I? The devil's going to come along and we need to know we now have authority in Christ over him, over sin, over fear you know, the unrest, uncertainty in our culture, you know, there's unemployment and concerns about, you know, the virus. But in all things, Jesus said he had snatched back that authority Satan stole from Adam and he's given back to us. And it's our choice to take that authority and walk in him, walk in him in the way we live triumphant over sin, walk in him in the way that we pray and the way that we live our life and the way that we stand in courage and not fear. Napoleon Hill said, poverty and riches are the offspring of thought. So let's talk about our thinking here for just a moment. As we have said often, what you focus on is what you feel. So even in this time of uncertainty, more than ever, take a moment, answer these three questions. These are something I learned from Anthony Robbins. Just to answer your question, I'm sure we all would say we would find yourself in each category, but where do you find your focus? Not just here this month with the challenges, but what's your core been for, for generally over your life? Answer these three questions. What you focus on is what you feel. Question one, do you focus more on what you have or what you don't have? When people are honest, most people say they focus more on what they don't have, but what's the answer for you? Two, do you focus more on what you can control or what you can't control? And last, do you focus more on the past, present, or the future? So let's think about this for a moment. Do you focus more on what you have or what you don't have? Control, can't control the past, present, or future. Let's put this in perspective. Take somebody that focuses on what they don't have. They're always looking at what's missing. And they also then focus on what they can't control. You know, the economy, the crowds at the grocery, not finding items, you know, whatever's happening. And then they focus on the past with regret. They don't have, can't control, focused on the past. That person is going to live a very different life, a life with challenges and depressions and sadness. You know, we all know people that have gone and they received help with a psychiatrist, but then they they took antidepressants and they still had that depression. Well, why is that? Because these are spiritual issues that have to be addressed as well. And if you focus on what you don't have, can't control, focus on the past with regret, you're going to have the challenges therein. Take that and compare it to somebody that says, you know what, I focus on what I have. I walk in gratitude. I focus on what I can control, my attitude, my decisions. And I focus on the present, actions I can take now to expand, to grow, to contribute, and I look to a compelling future. Very different lives, but you and I can stop and say, you know what, Christ, He's given me authority to walk in Him in life, so I can choose to focus on what I have, what I can control here on the present. As well as a compelling future. Go back to Romans 5, the second part of that verse in 17. Paul says again, Adam, he brought death, but how much more, he says, in Christ do we receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness? An abundance of grace, what does that mean? It means complete forgiveness. What does it mean to have the gift of righteousness? It means you and I in Christ are holy, not because of what we have done, not because we are in any type of religion, but simply because Jesus left that tomb behind, conquering death, hell, the grave, and sin, exchanged his life for ours, so now we are righteous because he is righteous. You know, Zach Smith put it well. He says a problem is really not a problem at all. It's just an opportunity thrown in our path to give God praise and testify to his greatness. When you and I can walk in that type of focus and say, my problems are a chance to see God show up in a new way because you know what? He's given me an abundance of grace. I carry sin no more. He's given me righteousness so I walk in holiness and I don't fall for the lies of the enemy. Rather, I take my authority in Christ and tell him, get behind me, Satan. That's why it's said so well by Greg Reed, there is a difference between being interested and being committed. A lot of people have interest in spiritual things, but that's different than saying, you know what, I'm committed. And this is the perfect time to move from being interested to being committed. Because it's the hope and the promise that he is risen, he's risen indeed, that we can say because of that, how will I choose now to live my life victorious in him? We all know Matthew 28, 6. It's the, the promise we live and celebrate day to day. The angel said, do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. You know, things may be different right now in our culture, but you know what? Jesus is the same, we're told, yesterday, today, forever. He is risen just as he has said and his risen life is now available to you and I to walk in him an abundance of grace and a gift of righteousness Joseph Stow says it well through the years I've discovered how easy it is to tire of myself I tire of the insecurities that hound me of the sins that defeat me and of the words I wish I could take back I never tire of Jesus I find Jesus more compelling than anyone I have ever known. Each day I serve him, he proves to be more worthy of my adoration. That's what it is to walk in him and to know the promise that, you know what, he is risen just as he said. So as we come to this moment, you and I have the choice to say he offers his life, his life of of perfect grace and righteousness and to give us the authority back that Adam lost. And in that authority, we can say, you know what? We stand over fear. We stand over Satan. We stand over sin. And we can walk in Christ. And no matter the uncertainty, the unrest, maybe you've been dabbling up to this point in spiritual things. It's been an interest. And you're called now. And you can sense that calling to move from being interested to being fully committed to say, I reach out. I take hold of his nail pierced hand and I follow where he goes because here's the thing go back to Romans 5 the last part of that verse Adam brought sin Jesus brought an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness and he says why as we close here we now reign in life through the one Jesus Christ that word reign is used in scripture just like we use it today it means royalty it means to to be over. So now in Christ, because he's given us back the authority in life, we reign in life. You now have a royal calling in him. He welcomes you and me to say you're a part of a kingdom now, and you're a son, a daughter of the Most High. You're part of a royal family, and you now are called to live in that victory, reigning in life through Christ. Jesus snatched back that authority, handed it to you and I, and he says, now reign Reign in life. It's not about circumstances. It's not about uncertainty. It's not about the past. It's about saying, you know what? I know more who I am in Christ. He would part a Red Sea for me. He enters into my life to show that love and that grace. So here's the moment that I can make a decision to say, I will follow after him. I want to share a final story here by Helen Rosevear that demonstrates all of this demonstrates what it's like to reign in life, even in incredibly uncertain circumstances. In fact, what you're going to hear here is a part of her life. At this point, she is a, a missionary teaching at a school of missions, and she's in Africa. Before this, she had been facing violence and just terrible things while out on the mission field, and she continued to serve Christ no matter what had happened. And now she's a teacher, And she was asked by a journalist years after this because she would write this story down and he said, did it really happen just like you said? And she said, you know what? It happened exactly like I said. And I'm going to read her words and just sit back and just for a moment, stop and think about the promise of what it is to reign in Christ. Abundance of grace, the gift of righteousness. You might be three feet from gold, never give up. Walk in the authority he offers. Here's Helen Rosevear. One night I had worked hard to help a mother in the labor ward on the mission field. In spite of all we could do, she died. She left us with a tiny premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter. We would have difficulty keeping the baby alive as we had no incubator and we had no electricity to run an incubator. A midwife went to stoke up the fire and fill a hot water bottle. She came back shortly in distress to tell me in filling the bottle it had burst. It is our last hot water bottle, she exclaimed. All right, I said, put the baby as near the fire as you safely can. Sleep between the baby and the door to keep it free from drafts. Your job is to keep the baby warm. The following noon, I went to have prayer with the orphanage children who chose to gather with me. I explained a problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning the hot water bottle. The baby could so easily die if it got chills. I also told them about the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died. During the prayer time, one 10-year-old girl named Ruth prayed, "'Please, God, send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God, as the baby will be dead. Please send it this afternoon.'" She added by way of corollary, and while you are about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl? Now, Helen shared when this child said this, she was not sure what to say because, again, to say amen is a way of saying I agree, and she struggled. You know, what do you say when this girl has just made this impossible prayer request? In fact, as Helen would say, she had been in Africa for four years and had never, ever received a parcel from home. She went on to say, if somebody did send a parcel, why would they ever include a hot water bottle? We were on the equator. Back to her words. She says this halfway through the afternoon while I was teaching in the nurses training school, a message was sent. There was a car at my front door. By the time I reached home, the car had gone, but there on the veranda was a large 22 pound parcel. I felt tears pricking my eyes. I could not open that parcel alone. I sent for the orphanage children. Together, we pulled off the string, carefully undoing each knot. We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it unduly. Excitement was mounting. There were 30 or 40 pairs of eyes focused on that large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out brightly colored knitted jerseys and some bandages. Then came a box of mixed raisins. Then I put my hand in again, and I felt, could it really be? I grasped, pulled it out, yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle. I cried. Ruth was in the front row with the children. She rushed forward, cried out, if God sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. Rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out a small beautifully-dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She had never doubted. That parcel had been on the way for five whole months, packed up by my former Sunday school class, whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. And one of the girls had put in a dolly for an African child five months before, in answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old to bring it that afternoon noon as the angel proclaimed he is not here he has risen just as he said i don't know what you are facing what prayer you need answered what wound you need healed what miracle you need to happen but the message is simply this he is not here He is risen Because he is risen He is always with you So moving from interest To commitment Moving from focusing On What you don't have What you can't control and the past To focusing on what you do have What you can control And being here in this moment, what would you ask of him right this moment? The one who snatched back authority out of Satan's hands and handed it to you and me and says, now you reign in life. He is risen. He is risen indeed.